This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So Donald Trump had a very interesting weekend following his indictment last week. He attacked the prosecutor, the judge, a key witness, and he did all of this knowing that he is not allowed to do that because during his arraignment last week, he agreed to very specific terms for his release. Quote, under oath, Trump swore that he would not attempt to influence or intimidate witnesses, retaliate against anyone, or in any other way attempt to obstruct the administration of justice. The magistrate judge asked, are you prepared to comply? Trump simply responded, yes. Now, he was explicitly told, should he violate these terms, he could be jailed until his trial, which is set to take place in May of 2024. That's a lot of months in jail. But do you want to know what this silly bitch did almost immediately after he was arraigned? All of that. All the things that could land him in jail. First and foremost, influencing and intimidating witnesses could get him taken into custody. Mike Pence is a key witness, but he's also a political rival. So he's technically fair game if Trump wanted to attack him on, say, policy. But Trump did not attack him on policy. He specifically attacked him over this case, writing on Truth Social, quote, Wow, it finally happened. Little Mike Pence, a man who was about to be ousted as governor of Indiana until I came along and made him VP, has gone to the dark side. I never told a newly emboldened Pence to put me above the Constitution or that Mike was, quote, too honest. He's delusional, and now he wants to show he's a tough guy. I once read a major magazine article on Mike. It said he was not a very good person. I was surprised, but that article was right. Sad. This man did not read a fucking article. <laughs> now, uh, that was in response to a Wall Street Journal opinion piece that Mike Pence wrote where he claimed that Trump told him he was too honest because he wouldn't overturn the 2020 election. But obviously, the intent here with this tweet is to influence and intimidate Mike Pence, who said he would comply if he was compelled to testify. And Trump responded to criticism over his attack on Mike Pence by doubling down and not only reposting his attack, but also adding, quote, I never said anything bad or even slightly inappropriate to little Mike Pence. What I did do was make him, over the many people who wanted it, vice president of the United States. Disloyalty in politics is alive and well. MAGA. Now, I shouldn't have to explain why calling somebody disloyal who is potentially going to testify against you is bad. That could be tantamount to him influencing and or intimidating the witnesses, but he did it anyway. But he didn't stop there, of course, because he ominously posted this thread on Truth Social, which reads, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. I'm sorry, I'm not going to keep doing the Trump voice, which prompted the Justice Department to request a protective order from Judge Tanya Shutkan, who was presiding over the case, by the way, to prevent him from releasing information and evidence about the case. And as Common Dreams explains, Special Counsel Jack Smith said in the filing that a protection order was particularly important in this case because the defendant has previously issued public statements on social media regarding witnesses judges, attorneys, and others associated with legal matters pending against him, according to The Hill. If the defendant were to begin issuing public posts using details or, for example, grand jury transcripts obtained in discovery here, it could have a harmful chilling effect on witnesses or adversely affect the fair administration of justice in this case, Smith continued. Now, this is a fairly common request in criminal trials, so it's not that abnormal. But the reason why it's necessary, particularly because of this case, is because prosecutors are going to soon turn over sensitive information and evidence to Trump's legal team, and they don't want him to share that because obviously that could affect the case, given the high-profile nature of this case. And he is already tweeting about the trial, so odds are he's going to use that new information that he gets from prosecutors to sway public opinion or possibly even obstruct justice. So the 
the protective order is obviously necessary for a fair trial, but it likely scared Trump's team shitless because they actually addressed his tweet that prompted this request in a statement saying, quote, the Truth Social post cited is the definition of political speech and was in response to the rhino China loving dishonest special interest groups and super PACs like the ones funded by the Koch brothers and Club for No Growth. Sure. And I love how even when he's not drafting the response, presumably, they still have to word it like him to sound extra stupid. But to be fair, he does have plausible deniability since he is running in an election and didn't name anyone specifically. But still, the order is necessary since he's demonstrated time and again that he is incapable of shutting up about his own legal matters. Now, Judge Chut Khan gave Trump's team until Monday at 5 p.m. to explain why there shouldn't be a protective order. And in response, Trump's team requested on Saturday to extend the deadline of that, but that request was subsequently denied by the judge. He then tweeted about it on Truth Social saying, no, I shouldn't have a protective order placed on me because it would impinge upon my right to free speech. Deranged Jack Smith and the Department of Injustice should, however, because they are illegally leaking all over the place. Yeah, so you saw him attack Jack Smith, and that wasn't all that he said about the prosecutor in this case. Let's listen. Every poll we're kicking Biden's ass. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't, we wouldn't be under investigation by deranged Jack Smith. He's a deranged human being. You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. I withdrew. Somebody said, why don't you be nice to him? I said, yeah, wouldn't matter. Wouldn't matter. This guy's a maniac. They gave me a maniac. They gave him the nicest man in the world. You know the boxes hooks, right? The boxes hook. This guy's got 1,850 boxes, Lindsay. He's got boxes in China. Even though it's Trump, it's still wild to see him just straight up attack the prosecutor publicly. But also, he attacked the judge as well, writing on Truth Social, There is no way I can get a fair trial with the judge assigned to the ridiculous freedom of speech slash fair elections case. Everybody knows this, and so does she. We will be immediately asking for recusal of this judge on very powerful grounds, and likewise for venue change out of D.C. I don't know if anyone has ever told Trump that shutting the fuck up is free. Somebody should tell him, like if I were his kid, I would just take his phone away from him because he keeps digging and he won't stop. He's incapable of shutting the fuck up and it is wild to see. Now listen, to be fair, if I were him, I'd also want a different judge too because this judge has a history of not going easy on insurrectionists and she should not. But you don't announce this request in a public attack on the judge where you question her impartiality. Because if your request is denied, obviously, then uh, you're kind of pissing off the judge who's going to be overseeing your case. So all of the things that he's doing here, I mean, it, it's again, it's Trump, so it's not surprising. But here's the thing. If this were a normal person, he would not be able to do this. And we all know this. Everybody knows it. And a lawyer named Andrew Wiseman on MSNBC confirmed that any other person would already be taken into custody. But because it's Trump... It's not going to happen, but let's listen. Donald Trump, under oath, swore that he would not retaliate against or threaten mm -hmm. any potential witness. Um, and then the next day, that post and others with respect to Mike Pence uh, were issued. So what can the judge do? Well, the judge can start by bringing the parties in and giving, you know, a sort of stern lecture. You know, this is you know, an admonition that you have one more chance. The other thing that the judge can do, because remember, Donald Trump is out on bail. Uh, mm -hmm. So he is not free to say anything that anyone else would is there can be restrictions on what he did and what he what he can do. This did happen with Roger Stone in this very same courthouse when he posted a photo of the district judge with crosshairs mm -hmm. over her shoulder. Um, and that led to severe restrictions on um, what he could post. Just to be clear, any other defendant who did this who was facing six counts of obstruction of justice, four in D.C., two in Florida, I think would be remanded, meaning would be sent to jail and would have to await trial in jail. Yeah, but since he is who he is, he gets special treatment, even though a normal working class person would never have this much leeway. I mean, imagine you were in Trump's predicament, but in much 
minimal circumstances where you were facing a criminal trial, would you attack the prosecutor, the judge, talk about witnesses publicly? Of course you wouldn't because you're not an idiot. But Donald Trump is both an idiot and has lots of power, and he knows that that is going to protect him. Now, if you think that he's unhinged now, just wait until he is indicted again, because guess what? It's entirely possible, if not likely, that Trump is going to be indicted by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis in Georgia. And the reason why people think that another indictment is likely is because they've concluded their investigation and sidewalks have been blocked off, roads near the court have been closed, and anticipated of an announcement. And um, that case also has to do with his interference in the 2020 election into Georgia. And since we're talking about the fourth indictment, I've got to say that the legal argument from Trump's attorney is laughably weak. And I'm no attorney, but I can see that they clearly have nothing. And I, I mean, if you were Trump's attorney, I don't even know how you would try to defend him, how you'd spin it. But I do know I'd come up with something better than this, even if there's not much to work with. But let's listen to his interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. The ballots are corrupt and you're going to find that they are, which is totally illegal. It's, it's, it's more illegal for you than it is for them because you know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. All I want to do is this. I just want to find, uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. If he had proof he won the state, why did he threaten the Secretary of State with a criminal, uh, with, with, a, with a criminal charge? That wasn't a threat at all. What he was asking for is, is for Raffensperger to get to the truth. He believed that there were in excess of, of 10,000 votes that were counted illegally. And what he was asking for is the Secretary of State to act appropriately and find uh, these votes that were counted um, illegally. Uh, that was an asper. Hold on one second. That was an aspirational ask. He's entitled to petition even state government, but that doesn't that doesn't involve an obstruction of federal government. But what the Biden administration has said is somehow President Trump obstructed a federal proceeding. That relates to what was going on in the states, and yeah. President Trump had every right to ask the Secretary of State. I believe that this election was conducted improperly. There are deficiencies here. I want to see if there are more than 10,000 votes or whatever the number was that were counted illegally. Once again, that's core political speech. Listen, you don't have to be an attorney to see that that argument is incredibly weak. It's an aspirational request to find votes to steal the election. Really? I mean, that request to Brad Raffensperger didn't take place in a vacuum. There's other evidence, there's other things that he did to steal the election. And as Salon puts it, legal observers are explaining that that argument is so terrible, they have to know, Trump's legal team has to know that they're gonna lose because I mean, what else is there to say though, honestly, right? I mean, again, everything that he did was very obvious, it was intentional and he did it with corrupt intent. So what defense are they going to make? I mean, it's pretty obvious that he's guilty. But again, I hate to stress this again because I do this every single time we talk about Trump's legal woes, but Trump is the leading candidate in the Republican presidential primary and he could very well defeat Biden in 2024. The most recent polls conducted at the end of July and beginning of August have them statistically tied. So this election cycle is going to be a wild, wild fucking ride because we have a candidate that could very well win the presidency after being convicted of a crime, if not numerous crimes, or even possibly being the winner from jail. Like, what happens in that instance? I mean, none of us really know, but we may find out very soon. So uh, buckle up, because the shit show that is American politics may have one of the most explosive series finales in election history. <laughs> Just because this person is six foot four doesn't mean they've got a, a, a great big Johnson. Well... But what, what was it big? Um, you know, it's that was a situation I tried to refrain from looking at entirely. Naturally, we all did. You can't unsee it. You saw we it. We can't unsee it. Um, it. I mean.
You just watched 67-year-old pervert Bill Maher pressure a guest on his Club Random podcast to describe the genitals of a trans woman. And I use the word pressure specifically because that was not the first time he asked her, even though she made it very clear she was uncomfortable talking about this. Now, for those unaware, he was talking to transphobic grifter Riley Gaines, who made a name for herself attacking trans people after she tied with trans swimmer Leah Thomas for fifth place. And rather than focusing her ire on the four other cis women who beat her, this sore loser decided to take out all of her anger on the one trans woman that she competed with and tied with because she knows it's a lucrative grift. And she's right. She's appeared in Republican ads. She's been interviewed on Fox News. She even spoke at a Trump rally. And appearing on Bill Maher's podcast is just part of her ongoing media tour grift. And what she claims is that she wants to save women's sports and when she says save women's sports she's not talking about the lack of funding or respect for women athletes she's talking about saving women's sports from trans women even though again she was defeated by four other cis women but she's more broadly against trans rights like she's not just one-dimensional and specifically all about sports she also denies trans existence and overall she's just a bigoted piece of shit. but this video is not about riley Gaines, nor is it about trans women in sports this video is about bill Maher and this ridiculous idea that you can be so disrespectful in your dehumanization of trans people yet still claim that you're an ally to an extent still try to ride the fence even though your behavior here is despicable and we're going to watch bill maher dehumanize leah thomas and reduce this trans woman down to her genitals but yet still try to suggest that he is an ally to trans people before they even get to that Mars is going to make it very clear that he doesn't even know about the story regarding Riley Gaines and Leah Thomas. Let's watch. She is the trans swimmer who beat you. We tied. I did not get beat. Um, I get called. No, beat you in the locker room with her big cock. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> in that <No>. case. <laughs> How big is her cock? <laughs> well, You've can... seen her cock, right? We all did. Well, how I big mean... is it? I mean, what, what kind of a cock is it? Describe her cock. Let's see. Um, well, I don't want to well, see it. Well, I just wanted to hear it. Well, if I had to see it, you have to hear it. <laughs> First of all, this is a six foot four man, right? Well, six a trans woman. A male. Okay, this is what she would claim. Um, and she does go through life as a woman, correct? Like A woman with male parts yeah we well, yeah, yeah right <laughs> i know i'm just trying to like <laughs> the like paint the portrait okay wait can i i'll be frank here i don't use she her pronouns when referring to yeah. thomas and i call it a male i think even using the term trans woman is giving thomas some of our language as women and i, I think Trans woman is a subset of male. I do not believe trans women are women, and so I'm saying that up front on yeah. the record. No, I'm basically on that page. I I think, of course, a trans trans is a is a true phenomenon. There are some people who are, and I'm sure this is the wrong phrasing, but people know what I mean. Born in the wrong body. Right. You know, they really do feel and want to be the sex they were not born. I get that, and those people should be protected and respected. That is my position as a one-issue candidate running for governor, no, <laughs> protected and respected. But I also agree with you that it is a different category. It is the, not the same thing as women, and you hear women all the time, and not just conservative women, who say, I am being erased. To be clear, he's referring to TERFs, and they may try to present themselves as feminist and or liberal, but that is nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to hide and justify their bigotry. And it's insidious because it mainstreams and normalizes anti-trans bigotry more so than explicit transphobia that we may see from the likes of Matt Walsh or Tucker Carlson, because it gives them plausible deniability by being less in your face, right? It gives them the facade of respectability, and and if they don't explicitly say, yeah, we want to eradicate transgenderism as Michael Knowles would, then people are more likely to take them seriously. It's sort of the J.K. Rowling approach to transphobia. It's still transphobia, but it's transphobia that sells more. Now, this sort of tactic that Bill Maher is trying to implement here is very common in the UK, and it was explained by British journalist Katie Montgomery in a recent episode of The Leftist Mafia. In the USA, your homophobes 
say that Esther, like your transphobes just say they want to wipe trans people out. They don't give a fuck. People in the USA say what they think. And it's terrifying in when you see them saying we should eliminate trans people and stuff. In the UK, we have people with exactly the same views, but people don't talk like that. When mm. you want to eradicate trans people, oh, proper British. You, you have, yeah, you say, like, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a centrist and I have just mild concerns about the way things are headed for, you know, tra children who are being manipulated by, you know, oh, people like with, it's, yeah, exactly. It's this kind of um, wrapping your bigotry and, and sounding reasonable. And, and that's the core part of British politics is however extreme your views are, you have to present them in the most kind of like, you know, restrained, uh, conserved sort of way. So you never say like, oh, gay people are destroying the family and we must get rid of gay marriage. You just say like, oh, you know, I just have concerns that, you know, what we're teaching children in schools about homosexuality is, uh, and you, you, what you're doing is presenting the same thing and people understand it that way, but it does just sell better. In other words, we're hearing a more polite version of the same argument for the same exact cause. What Katie Montgomery described there is exactly what Bill Maher is engaging in. It's this respectable form of transphobia that gets less backlash, that convinces more normies. But ironically, as he is claiming that trans people should be protected and respected, he's asking about their genitals. I mean, don't you think if he actually believed that trans people should be protected and respected, he wouldn't ask disgusting questions like this? I mean, think about it. Do you think that he would ask this question about a cis person? Would he ask Riley Gaines about her genitals? Imagine if somebody asked him or his wife or his mother or his sister to describe their genitals. I mean, imagine the ex of a really popular actress came on his show. Do you think that he would be comfortable asking them about that person's genitals? I mean, of course not, because to him, trans people are not like other human beings, right? They're a spectacle there for his amusement. That's it. That's his beliefs, even if he claims they should be respected. He's not walking the walk. He's just trying to talk the talk, and he's not even doing a good job at that. I mean, this disregard for trans dignity, it is the product of transphobia that he doesn't think applies to him somehow. And after he tried to make the case to protect and respect trans people, well, he then remembered that, oh, he got distracted from the original question, all this talk of, you know, respecting trans people, and he got back to really what he wanted to ask, which was about Leah's genitals. I forget what the original question was, but I think it's describe that cock. <laughs> I was trying to, uh, I was trying to run away from this question. I was trying to run away from this question. It was pretty evident that she was not comfortable talking about this, but since Bill Maher was oblivious, she even vocalized how uncomfortable that question made her and even tried to distract him by hate mongering about trans people. And it kind of distracted him for a little bit, right? Hence the whole protect and respect argument. But ultimately it got back to what he wanted to talk about the most which was Leah Thomas's genitals. And he continued to press her again after that clip, asking her, was it big? That was the first clip that you saw at the beginning of this video. Unbelievable. I mean, I shouldn't say that because it's not like this is shocking behavior for Bill Maher, but it's just, you know, th there's so many reasons why this is not okay. But there is a specific reason why transphobes in particular are hyper-focused on the genitalia of trans people. And interestingly enough, this was actually addressed in an interview with Leah Thomas, not that interview with Bill Maher, but why genitals are the focus of transphobes. And it's important to get her perspective, which is why I want to play this clip, since Bill Maher didn't give her the luxury of defending herself. So let's listen. They're using the guise uh, of feminism to sort of push transphobic uh, beliefs. And I think a lot of people in that camp sort of carry an implicit bias against trans people, but don't want to, I guess, fully manifest or, or speak that out. And so they try to just play it off as this sort of half support. They think about how twisted feminism, quote unquote, feminism has become. Their arguments, you know, in order to exclude anybody in the trans category, you have to reduce women to reproductive capacity, which is, in my opinion, extremely anti-feminist. I don't want to put those women down either. And I know you don't want, don't want to either because I see pain. 
all of that was completely spot on. But reducing people down to their genitals is the go-to move for the policing of all queer people, not just trans people. I mean, think about it. If you have a vagina, you are sexually incompatible with someone else who has a vagina because God didn't design you that way. This is the old homophobic argument that we heard from evangelicals. Or, you know, if you have a penis, by definition, you can't have a feminine gender identity because that's reserved for people with vaginas. It always comes back to genitalia every single time. Some school sports bills and bathroom bills from Republicans could literally lead to genital checks of children but yet they do it because they are obsessed. I mean, when a man from Kelowna, British Columbia accused a nine-year-old cis girl of being trans, he reportedly asked to see documentation proving that she was born a girl and his wife allegedly called her parents genital mutilators. I mean, it always comes back to genitals for these freaks at the end of the day. And then they project their obsession with genitals onto trans people and accuse them of perving on cis women in bathrooms, for example, because that's what they wanna do. Not necessarily Bill Maher, but transphobes more broadly speaking. And then also they'll accuse parents with trans kids of being genital mutilators after they probably circumcised their sons. Every single accusation is a confession. And that statement is especially true when it comes to accusations that Republicans lob at LGBTQ plus people. And apparently it also applies at Bill Maher, who wants you to think that he is a liberal or a trans ally even, which is comical at this point. But that's not really surprising to anyone who pays attention. Bill Maher has turned to the dark side and uh, he keeps bringing on evil people, deranged people like Riley Gaines and Jordan Peterson, but he doesn't platform the people who he likes to denounce because he's not trying to actually search for the truth. He wants confirmation bias and he's bringing on Republicans the most because currently they're the ones who are affirming the biases that he holds, even if he claims he's still a liberal and it's really the left who changed and not him. Well, if that were true, don't you think that he wouldn't talk to so many right-wingers constantly? Don't you think that you'd be able to have a conversation with a left-winger or even a liberal without frothing at the mouth? I mean, Bill Maher is a pathetic piece of shit, but this is kind of a new low. To obsess over somebody's genitals is despicable. And if you think this isn't a big deal, imagine if this were being done to your sister or someone else you loved. An airline attendant named Charlene Carter was fired from her job at Southwest Airlines in 2017 after working there for 20 years following a dispute that she got into with her union boss over the issue of abortion. Now, she took issue with other flight attendants attending the Women's March after Trump was inaugurated because she felt like these women were against Trump's anti-abortion stance and that offended her as a Christian. Now, specifically, she accused the union of using dues to pay for the flight attendants' trips to the Women's March, but the confrontation got even uglier than that and ultimately resulted in her termination. Now, as CBS News explains, Carter sent a series of Facebook messages, some containing videos of purported aborted fetuses to Audrey Stone, who was president of the union at the time. She called Stone despicable and said she would be voted out of office. According to court documents, the airline said it fired Carter because posts on her Facebook page in which she could be identified as a Southwest employee were highly offensive and that her private messages to Stone were harassing. The airline said she violated company policies on bullying and use of social media. Now, in response to her termination, she filed a workplace discrimination lawsuit against the company and her former union, and she claimed that the union retaliated against her for expressing her sincerely held religious views, i.e. her stance on abortion. Now, her case ended up going to trial, and she won. A jury sided with her, and she was reinstated, and not only that, she was awarded $4.15 million from Southwest Airlines and $950,000 from the Transport Workers Union, who represented her. Now, in order to understand why the jury possibly sided with her, we're going to listen to her attorney, Mark Nix. But, side note here, uh, be sure to look at the background and uh, notice the network that he's on. This is the dark underbelly of, of union representation. I mean, these are, these are the union officials who stand up and say, you know, we're all brothers 
brothers and sisters and we're fighting for each other and we want to represent you. Well, in this case, Charlene and others in the union, uh, other workers in the union were basically being criticized and being you know, harassed by uh, union activists and actually even talking with Southwest employees and the HR department talking about how you know this certain worker is a cancer in the workplace and we have to have these targeted assassinations to get rid of these people. And yeah, one email said that Charlene's head would explode if she actually knew what the union had spent their money on over the last 17 years. I mean, this is this is the the power and the kind of lack of accountability that exists in labor policy in America. When you give union officials the ability to speak for someone without their consent, to associate with them without their consent, even though they worked and you know they may work against changing the union or trying to reform the union from the inside out, these are the types of things that happen when a government grants union officials monopoly power over American workers. And these emails are evidence of all of that. Yeah. So she was represented pro bono by the National Right to Work Committee, whose sole purpose is to sabotage unions across the country at the behest of large multinational corporations. Now, this woman very clearly had an axe to grind with unions in general, and uh, she supported right to work herself. So they thought, hey, we have this, this disgruntled worker who got into a dispute with her union. Let's capitalize on this opportunity to push right to work. And if you watch that full interview, uh, half of it is him just advocating for a national right to work law, uh, which would destroy unions effectively. But to be fair to this woman, even if she may have been a right wing kook, the emails that came out during discovery where the union bosses joked about assassinating people like her did not make them look good. And I'm assuming that that probably is what convinced the jury to side with her as opposed to the union bosses. But overall, to me, putting aside the specifics and who was guilty, when I look at the details, it doesn't really feel like this is a religious discrimination suit, right? It doesn't feel like she proved religious discrimination. It seems like they didn't like her and perhaps did retaliate against her because she was an insufferable right-wing provocateur. But having said that though, you know, even right-wing provocateurs can't be fired without cause. They can't be retaliated against. Worker rights protect all workers, right? But when it comes to the idea that this was religious discrimination, it just doesn't seem very plausible to me. Sure, the union bosses fan the flames. I'm not, I'm not going to denounce uh, the worker exclusively here because it seems like they also played a role. But I mean, regardless of what I think, a jury determined that her termination was the result of religious discrimination. But nearly a year later, the judge in that specific case is responding to that claim with a brazenly unconstitutional punishment for Southwest's attorneys. Quote, U.S. District Judge Brantley Starr issued an order Monday that three senior Southwest Airlines lawyers attend eight hours of religious liberty training this month as part of court-ordered sanctions in an employment law case brought by a flight attendant who claimed religion-based discrimination. What's more, Starr, a Trump appointee and former long-term lawyer in the Texas Attorney General's office, specified that the airline's lawyers must take this religious liberty training from the far-right Christian extremist legal advocacy organization alliance defending freedom now just so we're crystal clear here a judge is ordering religious liberty training but that's not all said training must be given by the alliance defending freedom which is insane to put it mildly now if you're unfamiliar with the adf the southern poverty law center has designated them as an extremist group and for good reason they write founded by some 30 leaders of the christian right the alliance defending freedom is a legal advocacy and training group that has supported the recriminalization of sexual acts between consenting lgbtq adults in the united states and criminalization abroad has defended state-sanctioned sterilization of trans people abroad has contended that lgbtq people are more likely to engage in pedophilia and claims that a homosexual agenda will destroy christianity and society adf also works to develop religious liberty legislation and case law that will allow the denial of goods and services to LGBTQ people on the basis of religion. Since the election of President Trump, ADF has become one of the most influential groups informing the administration's attack on LGBTQ rights. So we have a judge in a country, by the way, where church and state is supposed to be constitutionally separate, that is mandating attorneys to attend a religious liberty training course from a Christian hate group that wants to criminalize every single aspect of queer existence. 
Now, in 2023 America, with how bad our judiciary has been fucked by Trump's far-right appointed justices uh, and judges, you know, it's not surprising that a judge is doing this, but it's really not surprising that this judge chose this particular group given his own history of anti-LGBTQ plus hate. In fact, ahead of his confirmation, Lambda Legal actually sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee urging against his confirmation, warning Mr. Starr has been a vocal opponent of LGBTQ non-discrimination protections throughout his career, and they later add, it is impossible to believe that he could administer fair and impartial justice to LGBT litigants appearing before him. Now, that was one of many warnings that the Senate Judiciary Committee received, but obviously he was still confirmed. And since his confirmation, queer litigants have been fearful of his bias. For example, in 2019, a trans woman wanted him to recuse himself from a lawsuit that she filed over her treatment in a Texas jail, citing his record of anti-LGBTQ plus bias, but he refused to do so. And now we're learning that he thinks a suitable punishment for attorneys is religious liberty training from an anti-LGBTQ plus extremist hate group. And this group has gained a lot of legal clout thanks to judges like him. The New Republic explains, it's hard to overstate ADF's role in rolling back civil liberties. One of its lead lawyers is Aaron Hawley, who is married to far-right Senator Josh Hawley. ADF helped overturn Roe v. Wade and then sued to remove Mifepristone, one of the drugs used in medication abortions from the national market. That case is still in limbo as the Fifth Circuit Court has yet to issue a ruling. ADF also represented the plaintiff in the recent Supreme Court case, 303 Creative v. Elenis. Web designer Lori Smith was suing to have the right to refuse services to LGBTQ people. The design request she claimed she received that prompted her suit appears to have been entirely fabricated. Yeah. Now, the organization responsible for that is now teaching religious liberty courses because a judge is mandating it. Absurd. Now, the question is, why is this judge doing this, aside from him being a biased far-right extremist himself? We get that, you know, he supports this organization because he agrees with them. But legally speaking, why is he issuing this punishment to Southwest attorneys when they already lost, right? This is a year later after the case was decided. Well, get this. The sanctions in large part were ordered as a result of the fact that following a jury loss in the employment case, Southwest was supposed to send out a notice that it, quote, may not discriminate against flight attendants on the basis of their religious practices and beliefs, but instead sent out a notice that it, quote, does not discriminate and a follow-up memorandum about civility. That certainly warrants religious liberty training from a far-right extremist hate group. Now, the implications of this are obviously horrifying. Slate's Mark Joseph Stern explains, if upheld, Trump's judge Brantley Starr's order would let courts force lawyers to undergo religious indoctrination sessions from an extremist group that may well contradict their own deeply held spiritual beliefs and freedom of speech. This cannot possibly be legal. He adds, during oral arguments in 303 Creative, Justice Gorsuch claimed Colorado put Jack Phillips through a re-education training program when it ordered him to stop discriminating against same-sex couples. Now, a Trump judge is forcing lawyers into an actual re-education program. Exactly. I mean, imagine what the right would say if a liberal judge required that a company and their attorneys who were found legally liable for LGBTQ discrimination had to attend a drag show or something. I mean, it's just, this is so absurd. And if this stands, we are opening the door to more judges mandating religious indoctrination from hate groups. And if you think that Brantley Starr is unhinged, I mean, imagine what other far-right activist judges would require of litigants. I mean, Judge Eileen Cannon, look at her. I mean, there's so many insane justices and judges throughout the country that the possibilities are endless and they are creative with the ways in which they want to indoctrinate all of us and force their religion and hate down our throats. So, I mean, it's something that is dangerous, it's illegal, but it is entirely unsurprising when our judicial system has been hijacked by corrupt far-right extremists. So let's talk about Russell Moore. For those of you who don't know who this is, this is a prominent evangelical pastor who was once a higher up at the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's now the editor-in-chief of the magazine Christianity Today, and he's also sending the alarm about Christianity in America 
saying that he believes it's in full-on crisis mode. Now, there's a number of reasons why he believes this is the case. First and foremost, he thought that the Southern Baptist uh, Convention mishandled a sexual abuse crisis. He also says that he's seen an increase in tolerance for white nationalism within the church. And additionally, he says that some congregates, specifically the ones who love Donald Trump, have even criticized the message of Jesus Christ in a way that he believes is very alarming. So as Ross Story explains, in an interview with NPR, Moore said that multiple pastors had told him disturbing stories about their congregates being upset when they read from the famous Sermon on the Mount in which Christ espoused the principles of forgiveness and mercy as central to Christian doctrine. Quote, multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount parenthetically in their preaching, turn the other cheek, and to have someone come up after to say, where did you get those liberal talking points more revealed? And what was alarming to me is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. He adds, when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we're in a crisis. In other words, this is another classic case of, well, I never thought that the leopards would eat my face, says person who voted for the leopards eating people's faces party. And the thought of them quoting Jesus Christ and the Trump-loving congregates coming up and saying, that sounds like some liberal bullshit to me, is so fucking hilarious to me. I, I love it so much uh, because, I mean... What did you expect? Now, to be charitable to the uh, to this guy in particular, he was one of the few evangelical leaders to come out against Trump when he started to rise to prominence, but in doing so, he was shunned by other evangelical leaders, which is what probably led to a lot of introspection about the movement that he was a part of. And the Trumpification of the evangelical movement in part is why he resigned from the Southern Baptist Convention back in 2021. Now, he also says that he believes part of the problem is that, quote, almost every part of American life is tribalized and factionalized, and that has extended to the church. And that right there to me is so interesting because the phenomenon that he's describing is in large part due to his church and his religion. Remember, evangelicals weren't necessarily overtly political as a movement until they got in bed with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, and that was when he decided to exploit their aversion to cultural changes by becoming their new culture war daddy. And in a 2021 op-ed for the Washington Post, professor of history Stephen M. Gillen explains, Reagan's first term record was a mixed bag as far as cultural conservatives were concerned. Even so, four years into his presidency, Reagan saw an opportunity to use religion to forge a new political realignment in the South, addressing a crowd of 10,000 religious leaders at an ecumenical prayer breakfast during the 1984 Republican convention, the president delivered a rousing speech. Reagan willfully blurred the line between church and state. Quote, religion needs defenders against those who care only for the interests of the state. The truth is, politics and morality are inseparable, and as morality's foundation is religion, religion and politics are necessarily related. He concluded, if we ever forget that we're one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. Not surprisingly, the Republican platform that year reflected the agenda of white evangelicals. It called for a constitutional ban on abortion with no exceptions and the appointment of federal judges who opposed abortion. It supported voluntary school prayer, ignored the Equal Rights Amendment, which Republicans had supported in every platform from 1940 to 1976, with only two exceptions, 1964 and 1968, and rejected equal pay for women. Jerry Falwell, founder of the the moral majority closed the 1984 Republican convention by triumphantly calling the incumbent ticket God's instruments in rebuilding America. Now, I want to pause right there to give you some additional context. So a lot of people don't know this, but Jimmy Carter was actually originally supported by evangelicals disproportionately because he himself identified as a born-again Christian. However, when he was in office, he didn't deliver for them. He mishandled abortion, according to them, as well as other cultural issues. But more importantly, at this time, it's important to know that the evangelical movement was exploding. So the number of Americans who identified as born-again Christians jumped by 15 points between 1963 and 1978, and the Southern Baptist Convention grew by the tune of millions. So Reagan saw that, and he took that opportunity to cynically weaponize this movement for political purposes. And guess what? 
it worked. It was wildly successful. We're still dealing with the ramifications of that alliance today. And even though he was obviously a political puppet for elites and large multinational corporations, all that he had to do to get these evangelicals to clap like seals was play the greatest hits when it came to the culture war. And this is all really important context because the rise in Christianity coincided with the rapid social progress that they were seeing at this time. Gillen continues, the rise of Christian fundamentalism represented a backlash against the cultural liberalism of the 1960s. In the minds of many evangelicals, the federal government and the liberals who staffed it had engineered America's alleged moral decline. They felt traumatized by a string of perceived offenses, the Supreme Court's decisions legalizing abortion and banning school prayer, the gay rights and women's rights movements challenging traditional gender roles, and the Internal Revenue Service's decision to remove the tax-exempt status of private Christian schools. Outraged, these Americans became a major force in politics, leading campaigns against LGBTQ rights, playing a key role in stopping the ERA's ratification, and fighting for a constitutional amendment to ban abortion, offering an upside for the party that could capture their loyalty. So this blending of evangelicism and Reaganomics killed the New Deal era, and it also put our country on a very destructive path that resulted in, well, everything we're seeing today, right? Hyper late stage capitalism and the mixing of church and state. Now, the problem is America is changing. Not only are we undergoing another period of rapid social progress, but newer generations are less white and less religious, meaning that the church is in crisis mode, which is why the Republican Party has to resort to gerrymandering and voter suppression to win elections. See, that alliance was very beneficial to evangelicals and the Republican Party for a time when demographics favored them. But now, as America continues to change, the demographics are less favorable to them. And what we're hearing from them are the dying cries of this movement that was once arguably the strongest force in American politics. But getting back to Russell Moore, because again, he said that part of the problem is that America is too factionalized and tribalistic. Well, yeah, you did that, brother. And when the church and politics blends together, I mean, what do you expect? You shouldn't be surprised that a demagogue like Trump came along and usurped your literal deity because you opened that door. Your movement wanted this. And now it's coming back to bite you in the ass. And he sounds even a little bit defeated, arguably, because he also told NPR that he doesn't think that this is a battle for, for the uh, soul of Christianity at the national level. Really, it's about making a change at the local level with your community and with your family. But see, the problem is that evangelicals know that the only way to maintain hegemony is to use the state to shove their religion down our throats, hence the sudden rise in Christian nationalism from politicians who want to force the state and religion to become one. Because the local level is where we saw firsthand how hateful this institution is. I mean, we all experienced it, and that's why we left. That's why Christian nationalists are trying to just use the state to force us all to subscribe to their religious values because we're not willfully doing it like we did in the 80s and the 90s. But look, I'll be honest, I am glad that evangelicism is imploding. I know that people are going to take issue with that, but I'm glad that this religion, at least in America, is dying. Because as a former Christian evangelical myself, whose childhood was ruined by this hateful cult, I am happy to see that the seeds of divisiveness that they sowed are now coming back to bite them in the ass. You reap what you sow. Asayel Espinosa spends his nights on the road delivering pizzas in Chicago. Me encanta hacer delivery porque la gente está contenta cuando llega su comida. But on some nights, he says, the longer he works, the less he makes. Four dollars per delivery. De casi una hora, solamente he hecho dos deliveries, que son ocho dólares. Entonces, uh, si ustedes se dan cuenta, tal vez a lo mejor ni no estoy ganando ni el mínimo, tal vez. The pizzeria owner claims drivers are independent contractors, paid by the delivery, not the hour. But Espinosa says he works a scheduled shift, and that he's expected to clean and stock shelves when he's not delivering, without getting paid a dime. 
You just watched a clip from CBS News featuring a pizza delivery driver who was one of hundreds of thousands of Americans who falls victim to a crime that just doesn't get as much attention as other crimes. I'm talking about wage theft. The Economic Policy Institute estimates that $50 billion is stolen from ordinary Americans every single year, which, if true, is the equivalent of 5.5 million stolen cars, 12 million bank robberies, or 76 million snatched purses, according to CBS News. And if the EPI's estimate is correct, then, as CBS News explains, that number dwarfs criminal offenses such as robbery, which accounted for just under $500 million in losses in 2019, according to FBI data. Burglary accounted for about $3 billion in losses that same year, and motor vehicle theft made up about $6 billion. Furthermore, Demos used data from the Economic Policy Institute and Global Retail Theft Barometer and found that the value of wages lost due to minimum wage violations alone was higher than the estimated value of merchandise lost due to shoplifting between 2013 and 2015. But keep in mind that wage theft involves more than just minimum wage violations. It also includes unpaid overtime and rest break, as well as off-the-clock violations, among other types of violations. And when you combine all types of wage theft, it actually surpassed all other forms of theft in 2018, as visualized by this popular Tompkins County Workers United graphic, using data, again, from the Economic Policy Institute. And CBS News reports that if wage theft crossed the threshold to be considered a felony, which is going to vary by state to state, by the way, then 27% of the total wage theft cases they examined would be considered a felony. And even though the ratio between wage theft and other types of theft varies each year, this issue hasn't gone away, right? It still harms hundreds of thousands of American workers every single year. And the point in comparing wage theft to other types of theft is to show you how prominent it is, but yet this just doesn't get discussed in other conversations related to crime. But the question is, why is this crime so rampant. Well, as CBS News reports, there's a good chance they'll get away with it. They continue, that confidence is well-founded. Most wage theft is never reported in the first place, according to Shelley Rasika. For those unaware, this is the development director of Arise Chicago. This is an organization that tries to help Chicago workers recover stolen wages. She continues, sadly, it's people who have the least political power who are victims of wage theft, Rasika said. If you're poor, you might have to work three jobs and you don't have time to do anything else. Else, basically, besides work and try to take care of your family the best you can. If you don't speak the language, you might be afraid to go and talk to the government. So that's part of the problem. And the fact that in many instances, wage theft goes unreported, it makes it so much more difficult to track than, say, retail theft, where corporations can give an exact number related to their annual shrink or loss in profits due to theft. But to make matters even worse, when it is reported, many victims of retail theft never see justice even when they win. CBS continues, CBS News submitted public records requests to nearly every state labor department in the country and built a database of more than 650,000 total complaints. Of those cases, state agencies ruled in favor of claimants only about half the time. Even when workers won their claims, more than a third of those successful cases, totaling nearly a billion dollars, showed no money was ever recovered. And this is because, depending on where someone lives, they might have more or fewer ways to fight for what they're owed. In big cities like New York, Los Angeles, Angeles and Chicago, victims of wage theft can report it to the city, the state, and even the federal government. But in some states, such as Alabama and Florida, where there is no state-level process for filing a wage theft claim at all, workers have fewer options. And these variations in wage theft laws obviously complicates things. And even though wage theft is illegal, it's just not treated like a crime in the traditional sense. And what I mean by that is, if your employer, for example, catches you stealing from the cash register, they can call the police on you and you'd go to jail. But if your employer commits wage theft and makes you work off the clock, well, you don't have that same luxury. You can't call the police on your employer and say that they're stealing from you. So there's this imbalance here. And wage theft is almost never included in more general discussions about crime, even though it quite literally by definition is also a crime. And it's not just another crime. It is one of, if not the most common crimes, depending on the year, and almost all multinational corporations 
corporations do it. And these criminal corporations lobby against action whenever state and federal lawmakers try to address it. And more perfect union details this in a lengthy thread with numerous examples of this explaining fast food corporations and trade groups have spent $4 million lobbying against a California bill that would hold corporations responsible when franchise owners break the law. Some of these companies unsurprisingly have a history of wage theft. Fast food corporations are often exempt from legal liability at franchises operating under their name. AB1228's authors, this is referring to a California bill, say the lack of corporate responsibility is partly why the industry is rife with wage theft and other labor law violations. Yum Brands, which owns restaurants like Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut, has spent more than $33,000 to defeat AB1228. Between lawsuits and fines, Yum has been penalized at least $53 million for wage theft in the United States, going back to 2000. Chick-fil-A and Jack in the Box have reportedly spent a collective $83,000 against the bill. Last year, a Chick-fil-A franchise owner in North Carolina was fined for paying some employees with meal vouchers instead of wages. In 2022, an Oregon jury awarded former Jack in the Box employees more than $6 million for wage theft claims against the company. The No on AB1228 coalition has spent $3.5 million lobbying against the bill. Companies backing the coalition include McDonald's, Subway, and Domino's. McDonald's and its franchisees have paid more than $35 million to settle wage theft claims. One group of Subway stores in California was recently shut down by a federal court after the U.S. Department of Labor charged the owner with wage theft as well as child labor violations and intimidating workers. And Domino's Pizza has been charged with more than $12 million in wage theft since 2000. In 2021, a North Carolina franchise owner agreed to pay more than $3 million to more than 3,000 drivers to settle wage theft claims. So there are countless examples of these large multinational corporations repeatedly stealing from their own employees. And thankfully, that particular piece of legislation referenced in that thread has passed California State Assembly and it now heads to the state Senate. And that legislation comes after we learned just how egregious wage theft is in California alone, where again, they have more protections than states like Alabama and Florida. A study released in May of 2022 by the Service Employees International Union and Fight for 15 found that among the 410 fast food workers that they surveyed from 259 fast food restaurants across 86 Californian cities, 85% of those workers experienced at least one form of wage theft, 57% experienced multiple forms of wage theft, and nearly a third were retaliated against for asking to be paid properly. Now remember, California is just one state and that study looked at one industry. But this is happening across the country in all sectors of the economy. So if you extrapolate and you look at states with less protections in different sectors of the economy, then you can imagine that it's probably much worse there. And again, it's bad in California when they have protections, but imagine how bad it is in, say, Florida. So it is really impossible to overstate how common this phenomenon is. And we've looked at the data, but it's important to remember that this isn't just about numbers and statistics. This is a crime that affects real people. And wage theft doesn't just involve employers nickel and diming employees here and there when it comes to breaks or overtime. Sometimes it involves companies paying workers late or just not paying them at all. And if you think that this isn't common, well, it happened at one of the country's largest retailers, Kroger. It was um, the first pay period of October and I didn't get a paycheck. Nothing directly deposited into my bank. And I thought, that's that's odd. Kroger employees say they've been paid late for weeks. A payroll computer glitch, they're telling us. The new payroll software is cheating them out of their hard-earned money. When the money comes, it doesn't come in full. At the beginning, it felt like this was maybe a, a one-week, one-payroll issue, and it was gonna get corrected. But now we're sitting here about six months later, and we're still dealing with uh, payroll issues. It feels as though you're working for a sweatshop and nobody cares. They don't fix the problem. They make it look like you're the problem. I show up every day, but yet they can't pay me. I just felt really bad. That paycheck was missing from October 6th until maybe a couple days before Christmas. At the time when it happened, Thanksgiving was right around the corner. You think they asked me about, oh, um, it's Thanksgiving, you need a turkey, some stuffing, a gallon of milk. 
Nope. Nothing. It's particularly bad for Kroger workers to miss a paycheck because many of the workers are struggling to survive. My income from Kroger is very important because I have little ones. I am the breadwinner of this family. There was a study published at the beginning of last year by the Economic Roundtable. And some of the things that came out in that study was 78% of Kroger workers were dealing with food insecurity. When you put it into that perspective, missing a paycheck or two is catastrophic. Now, imagine if one of those employees decided to just take the money that they were owed out of the cash register. What do you think would happen? The manager would call the police on them and they'd go to jail, even though it's technically not stealing since they're the ones being stolen from. And something that Tanya said, it really stood out to me. She said that they don't fix the problem. They make you look like you are the problem. And that is so true. It speaks to this exploitative relationship between employers and employees where any and everything that they do is acceptable by default because that's the way it can be when you have all the money and all the power. I mean, if a worker complains too much, then they can take away their livelihoods like that and leave them high and dry. They can lose everything. So it doesn't just feel that way, by the way. We're not just going off of vibes here. This is how it is in practice. This is how our capitalist system is designed. And that's why wage theft isn't treated like other crimes. And on that note, the Associate Director of Policy and Research at Demos explains, the American justice system is skewed in favor of power and privilege, treating crimes of the powerful, such as stealing from employees' paychecks, far more leniently than crimes committed by those with less power, such as shoplifting. The disparity between the crimes of the powerful and those with less power is deeply linked to who the victims and perceived perpetrators are. Women, people of color, and immigrants, especially undocumented workers, are disproportionately likely to be victims of wage theft. A violation that disproportionately impacts them is allotted fewer resources for deterrence, investigation, and enforcement compared to shoplifting, and penalties are weaker. In contrast, even though shoplifting is committed by people of all ethnic and racial backgrounds, people of color, particularly African-American consumers, are profiled as potential shoplifters, feeding into racial and ethnic disparities throughout the criminal justice system. And that's the conclusion of her 2017 report for Demos about why wage theft and shoplifting are treated so differently. It's dated for sure, but her conclusion is as true as ever. In our capitalist society, we have been conditioned to think that theft is only a crime when the working class commits it, right? But if the ruling class steals from you, they get a little slap on the wrist at most. If you steal from them, your life could be over if you get caught. But crime is crime, and wage theft is a crime whose victims are very real. So why aren't we talking about this? And if you're LARPing as a progressive who pretends to value labor, maybe your act would be more believable if you show just an ounce of concern about these crimes and not just the ones that disproportionately affect the profits of large multinational corporations. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.